0: I mean, that's the main thing, is is to go out and do the same thing with running. The hardest part is to just get out the door.
1: Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success. And I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more... This podcast is for you. Nature is God. The key to life is contact. These words are carved into the table at the home of my guest today. His name is Bernd Heinrich. He is the author of more than 12 books and a hundred scientific papers. The one that I asked him about in this interview is his most recent racing the clock running across a lifetime. Bernd holds many records as a runner In 1983, while he was in his 40s, he set a record for the 24 hour run, running nearly 157 miles, 156.8, a runner of many talents. He ran a sub two minute half mile, which if you know about running, you know, running a four minute mile is amazing, he ran half a mile in under half that time, he also at one point, and still today holds records, but at one point he set the American national records for any age in ultramarathon distances of 100 kilometers, 200 kilometers, 100 miles, and as I've said, the, that distance in 24 hours, which is remarkable. And much of this later in his life. In this conversation, we cover many things, including having a plan versus enjoying life. We talk about love and its role in our lives and balancing it with accomplishment. We talk about finding our own path, figuring out who we are. We talk, of course, about running. We talk about aging. And then we talk, as we often do, also about writing. For many years, Bernd's work focused on comparative physiological ecology of insects, where he studied bumblebee behavior, he studied moths, he studied caterpillars very closely, and their ecology and their pollination he later shifted to studying ravens and other birds in fact in this interview uh you might be able to hear a woodpecker i think it stopped for the most part as we got into the interview but we could hear the woodpecker that lives right outside his cabin in this interview as i asked Darren about running as i asked him about writing as i asked him about how we can live responsibly in a way that makes a difference for the future of our species and this planet a theme that kept coming back was this one of just beginning. I love the way that Barrent says this in running, as they say, the hardest and most important step is always the first one out the door. Everyone can do it. And it counts for many years. Barent has lived in a cabin in the woods in Maine, one that he built himself by hand. He lives without running water, phone service or refrigerator. And he heats solely with wood, And relies on a solar panel to power his laptop and his wi-fi router. He's just about to turn 82 years old and he's still running about four miles a day. I find Bernd to be an inspiration and if you don't know him already I think you will too. So with that I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend Bernd Heinrich. Bernd, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Thank you, nice for being with you.
1: Will you tell me please, what is life about?
0: Well, uh, I don't know what it is, but, you know, I can only talk for myself, you know, uh, what, 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 what I think it might be. I'm sure it's different things for different people, but I think it's uh, being uh, part of, 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 of life, being part of it. And uh participating in it and getting enjoyment out of it, bringing others enjoyment uh, and having it being mutual and uh, uh, and and, and trying to make a difference if you possibly can uh, for the better uh, and uh, uh, and not take it too serious yeah but you know I, I, I'm You know, for me, I'm a biologist, and I'm really interested in life itself, to to know as much as I possibly can about it. Um, Because I think in order to make any difference, uh, you have to know, you know, what's going on. You have to know the truth. You have to know what's going on uh, and before you can make the the right decisions uh, so you don't act the opposite and, and do harm. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, uh, so. Knowledge, I think, is is fairly important.
1: Yeah. Well, and as I know, so much of the knowledge you've gained is been firsthand, taught directly from nature, living in the woods, and growing up. First, for the early years of your life, as I understand, in uh, East, is it East Prussia? Uh, and I uh,
0: west. West, west 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 Prussia.
1: So I want to. I want to come back to that for a moment, but I I want to I, I do want to acknowledge we might have a guest in this interview a woodpecker <laughs> just <laughs> outside of where you are now. Will you tell uh, me and and people listening where are you right now?
0: Well, I'm uh, <clears throat> on a small mountain or hill in the in in western Maine in the mountains of western Maine. I'm in a beautiful part of the state. It's all forested. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know I've been here since uh, since I was uh, uh, what's that eleven years old in this area, wow. uh, and uh, so I'm 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 really you know I've been all over the place uh, you know Africa or whatnot and and Alaska and all over the states and uh, but you know I always come back here uh, so I'm in this cabin which I built. Uh, uh, My law was still in California. I, I was already thinking I'd come back here someday. And, and so now I am uh, where i like to be.
1: Wow. That's beautiful. Bernd, Bernd, I think you are truly living the dream. So many people who have a, a fantasy, so to speak, of escaping mm-hmm. urban areas or suburban areas and having more direct contact with nature. And I understand that you're sitting, you might now be sitting at a table where there's uh, many people have carved initials and even little sayings into, and that there's one in particular, nature is God, the key to life is contact. Do I have that right? And, and if so, what, yeah, you, what does that mean to you?
0: That, that's correct. Yeah one, one of my first students uh, carved it in there and and i I can't even decipher the name now I hope he's listening to this podcast, so I hope he hears it uh because you know it's it's in in the one corner of that table, and there are you know the hundreds of signatures in there carved into the wood and, and 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 little pictures and saints and and this is this is one of my favorite ones and, and I quoted it i think in uh in um, why we run or uh maybe racing the clock. I forgot which one.
1: Yeah, that's right. And this direct contact with nature is something that's been a part of your life, as I understand from your very first day. Will you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what the conditions were and, and maybe why you came to the United States and what life has been like since?
0: wow that's that's a long story <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you can tell that with the focus on your contact with right. nature, staying close to insect people of, of, of birds and yeah. caterpillars and so forth
0: right well <clears throat> uh you know my family came from from what's now poland and it was originally you know west Prussia, and uh, and uh, we we uh uh, were part of the big emigration at the end of the war uh, uh fleeing uh, to the west and uh <clears throat> and we uh, eventually made it and it was a long trek uh with a lot of adventure which uh if people are interested they could read the snoring bird where I talk about it uh but it was uh uh, we, we ended up, you know, uh, in uh, in northern Germany. And, uh, you know, we had no place to really go. Uh, we My father had uh, a contact there. They said, if you're ever in trouble, come over and stay with us. But there were so many refugees there. It was all filled up that there wasn't any room. And there was a forest nearby. And uh, so my father is a... Uh, wasp specialist, Neuman wasps, and and he, my mother, well, the first thing they did went out there looking for wasps, <laughs> and uh, and they found this little hut, uh, you know, a forester's cabin or something in the woods, and they talked with the forester and says, yeah, it's empty, you can stay there. Uh, uh-huh. So we ended up staying there in the forest for six years, uh, and uh, basically living off the land nobody had any official job or anything like that uh you know we picked berries and and trapped mice and and ate them and 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 uh, uh mushrooms and berries and and we had uh you know a couple of horses that we picked up on the way uh that we brought with us and a wagon uh you know all kind of what was running loose there and we Traded it to the farmer in town in the little village, and uh, so my father uh, was still totally uh, uh, in love with this wasps, and and he went and I was helping him collect the wasps. So I got to know insects pretty well, uh, and um, and and he had colleagues in the states. Uh, not only from his wasps, but also from his expeditions to uh, Sulawesi and Burma uh, for for the American Museum and for the Berlin Museum, and uh, and um, so you know he had contacts. Says, well, come to the states, uh, and he wanted to publish his wasps, and and he said, well, you could publish it here, and so that's why we came. Wow! But we were, you know, fairly happy. We were. You know, living in the woods and I had a pet crow as a companion uh, and, you know, I'd have sometime a jay and a pigeon and, uh, you know, I was always out with him, you know, setting traps uh, in the woods uh, and, and catching insects and looking for berries. So, uh, you know, I basically, my first memories are, are just, you know, with living in the woods.
1: Wow. So I understand that there was a time not long after your family came to the United States that your parents continued to do work abroad and left you in school here with your sister, basically in a school where all the other students didn't have parents. It was school for orphans, although you weren't orphans and that you just, you conducted a correspondence with your parents. Is that, is that true? And if so, what was that like?
0: Yeah, well, uh, um, yeah, they were in. Uh, <clears throat> they had a couple of expeditions to uh, Africa, mostly to uh, Angola uh, in uh, <clears throat> West Africa, and they were they would be there like years at a time, and and so we were uh, and we <clears throat> at the school uh, when they did come home, maybe. For Christmas, uh, once a year or something, we were not even allowed to leave because other kids couldn't do it, so. Why should we wow. have that privilege? Uh, and uh, anyway, it 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 was a uh, you know the Goodwill School is uh, and the founder was was really into nature. Really, uh, he you know uh, we had a Ernest Thompson Seton fireplace and uh, uh, and and so there was a good library and. And the librarian helped me to find the books about jack london uh up in the north and and so i and then we had cabins in the woods uh and I was becoming more and more bewildered in the woods uh, although we we had to you know be in the cottage and wash dishes and wash the floors stuff like that and 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 so I was kind of chafing on that after a while. And, and I, I ran away uh, with a couple of other kids and we were going to go right exactly where I am right now. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and, and we almost made it, but, uh, you know, we walked all the distance, like about 30 miles or so, uh, but got sent right back. And, uh, so I got kicked out. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, so that I had the best year ever after I got kicked out because my mother happened to be home then. Uh, they were going to go again, but she was home then. So I was back back here and uh, I had friends and neighbors who, who who were associated with these woods and they were really tickled to have somebody who was really interested in the woods. Uh, and so they kind of took me under their arms. So I had, you know, like other sort of pseudo parents uh, who were who were really uh, you know supportive uh, of me being out in the woods, going fishing and deer hunting and stuff. Uh, so uh, uh, you know I co- we continued. I, I basically continued that that same life that we had before, only only much more so now. Wow.
1: Well, and I understand also just from having read um, your book, Racing the Clock, Running Across a Lifetime, which I'll just also um, interject here. I love this book. I, I was touched by it. I learned so much about different uh, aspects of nature, about running, about life, about aging. So I hope that anyone listening, if, if any of those are interests at all of yours, that you'll pick this book up and enjoy it as much as I did. But from this book, one of the things that, that I took away, Barron, is that you didn't necessarily, you hadn't, even though you love nature and, and you had a home in it and you had this, this family, the this pseudo family, on a farm that you were part of Uh, that you hadn't necessarily found a way to distinguish yourself until you, until you really began running like as a competitive or maybe not even necessarily competitive in the cross country. But will you talk about where and how did running come into your life?
0: Ooh. Uh, well, it actually, it started at the school there. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I was, Probably one of the uh, most uh, uh near the nature ideal that they were actually thinking about, but, but they had people working who who weren't and and so uh i uh i was uh i, I was an outsider and and also i was you know i was speaking I was writing in German to my parents in Africa and, and my house mother said, you call me a little hun because I had a German heritage <laughs> and, and I was, uh, um, uh, didn't get along with her. And, uh, so, uh, uh what was I going to say? Um, uh,
1: so somehow we, I think we were getting to how running was a part oh, of
0: running. Okay. Yep. So, so that's right. So, so I went out for the cross country team and, uh, and, uh, you know, the first year I did pretty well, you know, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't run or actually I should mention one of the teachers, uh, had us read a book about Glenn Cunningham who got, uh, burned and he he became a runner. And so that kind of got the idea, you know, there was some value to, to running. And so I thought well, I can I can run. So I was running and I was became the male boy and had to run back and forth between towns. So I was getting in shape. And pretty soon I was winning all the meets. Uh, and 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 then I uh, rehabilitated myself. The principal said, Well, you are college material and in 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 the convocation in 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 school, he says. Uh, you know, Ben Heinrich, he's, he he won five races in a row and he's now an ace. And so I kept running, I made it 10 in a row. And and then and then said, well, you're college material, college material, I said, you gotta be a kid. So she said, well, I'll go to, I didn't wanna go to college, I wanted to be on the farm. But my mother then said, well, you better go to college, you know, you, you, it's, it's good for you. Said, well, I wanna live in the woods, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be a farmer, but uh, so so I'm glad she did. She re, she insisted, and so uh, I did go to college, and uh, and and I found out, you know, people were uh, were appreciative of of what I knew. Like some some of the professors, uh, I could talk to them for the first time, and and get you know people they, they were really interested, uh, you know, what I was interested in, and so that got me started. On, on being a biologist, taking uh, what I had from experience and, and making it into science uh, uh, from there. Uh, and uh, and that led to um, by a series of mm-hmm. accidents almost that, that I ended up uh, being interested in, in basically exercise physiology of insects. Uh, you know how they could uh, accomplish such amazing feats of, of physical prowess uh, and 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 I made discoveries uh, in in insect physiology that were just uh, uh, very inspiring uh, and and so I just kept running. I was seemed to be into that niche, and I was just running for the fun of it later on, and I just uh, uh, often had uh, injuries actually, which I thought would be lethal for, for running, uh, and so I appreciated it all the more when I couldn't run, but then I came back and, and would end up being even better than I was before because I appreciated it so much that I would put more into it. Uh, it was valuable, uh, and for it, it had always been, yeah, and con- thus continued to be.
1: I uh, um, I understand that there was one injury that you had where you recognized what had happened and immediately went to the hospital and asked for a surgery that day. (laughs) Will you talk about that?
0: Yeah. Well, I had uh, run a couple of races and had ended up going as far as a marathon, and then I ran as small ultra race, a 50 K and I ran, you know, right up near the front near, you know, somebody who held the American record for hundred K. I said, heck, you know, I haven't really trained for ultra. What if I really train, maybe I could do it. And so uh, uh, I decided to, uh, to really train for it. And I was, I would be 41 years old at the time of the race. Uh, and so I started, and uh, and I was right here at this camp, right here in the woods that summer. And uh, I had I was chopping down trees with an axe because I didn't yet know how to use a chainsaw. So I would be in the morning chopping down trees, and then afternoon running. Uh, and I slipped and uh, twisted my knee <clears throat> and broke a cartilage, and so. After I had decided I was going to try for the American record at 100k, uh, and you know I was really going to be committed to it, and here it was gone. Uh, so I said, "Well, maybe I can recover." Uh, so I, I immediately went to the doctor and says, "Do it now." I says, "You know, I want to get back out there." And uh, they did. They did it like I think the next day, uh, wow. and and ten days later I was out running again. I had a medial meniscus broken, <clears> and one of my
1: knees. That's amazing. And you said that was at age 41. Yeah. And you, and you did recover and subsequent to that. And there's so much in this uh, running career that I want to ask about. Yeah. Um, but I actually want to go back for just a moment to something you mentioned. You talked about this term, ACE, that um, I don't know if it was uh-huh. the principal or someone at the school who was in a position yeah, of Yeah, it was the principal, yeah. Principal, principal. Kelly, yeah. <laughs> that, that term, right? And, and the reason... Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say the reason that stood out to me as, is, as, is, um, as a coach is one who helps people achieve, you know, results that are important to them to, uh, that helps people to be the person they want to be, to live the life they want to live. Anytime I hear an identity statement, I, I know there's a whole, there's a history there. There's a belief set, that kind of thing. But you even talk about this in your book that this, this, this term, this title ACE was really important to you, right? And even it was. If I understand, it was the same principle that you had been in trouble with for maybe lighting something on fire or blowing something up, and then he changed his feeling about you once he viewed yeah. you as an ace. Right. So will you talk right. about maybe about the trouble that you almost got in, or and then the transition to this ace and how that label that label impacted you going forward? Just, if that uh,
0: well. Uh, as i said i i had run away and and that was a no no uh and uh uh put me kind of on the black list uh and uh uh and i hadn't any distinguishing characteristic uh showing at all uh and 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 i was also rather uh immature physically compared to others I was you know a very slow grower you know skinny and small and here were these guys you know they were men and and I was uh, I was just a little kid you know even though you know I was there 16 17 or whatever and uh, and, and so you know I could compete with them uh, and uh, and so I could finally do something and and be recognized, and, and it made all the difference. Like I said, uh, like like Kelly uh, uh, mentioned, in ace, and and it, again, it went back to Miss Dunham, a teacher who who uh, we talked about, Glenn Cunningham, who got who had an injury. Uh, he uh, he uh, he's through. He made a mistake too. Uh, even a worse one. He, he threw, uh, uh, gasoline onto a fire. He thought it was water. Uh, and he, he burned him and they told him he could never run again. <laughs> Shit. Um, anyway, you know, that touched me, you know, uh, th- that he could come back and he came the best American miler at the time. Yeah. Uh, or a great miler anyways. Uh, and so, you know, um, he really faced some huge handicap and uh um and 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 because of the handicap he became he became you know what he's known for if it hadn't been for that, he probably wouldn't have valued the ability to run as something that to be proud of uh, and, and something to 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 do uh you know that it's worthwhile uh you know to to uh, you have a gift and you don't even know it you didn't even know it until he tried it yeah uh, so so that's that's what I saw
1: amazing well thank, thank you for sharing that and then and then so you had this injury at 41 this this torn meniscus yeah. Yeah. and it, it was shortly before that that you ran your first marathon as I understand it age 39 and you won. which is not a common thing, right? We tend, this is one of the things that I love so much about what you share, Berenth is that my, I think our view, our view as whatever Americans or the Western world is that basically aging, which by the way, I didn't know this term senescence. So thank you for (laughs) giving me some more vocabulary, right? This, this term of aging. I think we tend to have this view that you get old, you get decrepit, you get diseased, you lose function, and then life gets horrible when you die. But that's not at all what I think you're living, right? You're still you're in your 80s now, as I understand, you're still running pretty much every day.
0: Yeah, my my 82nd birthday is in a couple of days.
1: Wow. Con- yeah, congratulations on that. And and this um, example that you live of being active, being healthy, being vigorous, making a contribution to others is one that I think is such a is such a refreshing alternative to. You know, we eat a junk diet, we live a sedentary life, we take a bunch of medications to manage pain or disability, and then we pass away and we get put in a casket (laughs) or something, but that's not, (laughs) not at all, you know, what, what you've been living in. So I I, I just want to go back to the running thing for a moment, because you've got this incredible spectrum. You've got this great range of you've, you've run a sub two minute half mile which is no small feat, but you also have incredible length where I understand, and I think you still hold the record, and maybe you can correct me, of having run 156.8 miles in 24 hours. Do I have that right?
0: Uh, 24 hours, yeah. Yeah, it, it was the American record, but I, I heard it's been beat now. I forgot who it is. I don't have kept track, but yeah, I had it, yeah.
1: And as, I, as you tell that story in the book, you mentioned that your plan that day was just to, to run, was it a hundred miler, but yeah. kind of spontaneously you and, and your support partner said, well, why don't you just go for the 24 hour record? And you're like, okay, <laughs> that's not common. Right. But will you talk about how that unfolded and what it was like?
0: Well, um, I, I would have, uh, <clears throat> um, I had, uh, it was a 24 hour race. I didn't want to run the 24-hour. I wanted to run the 100 miles. I had set the record for 100k. I said, "Well, I can do it for 100 uh, miles." And and for in the 24-hour race, uh, I talked with the race director. He would time uh, the the laps, et cetera, so I could do it. I would, you know, easily do the 100 miles. Uh, not easily, but I could do it, and, and I could and see if so, I would get the record. And how so? It
1: What's that? And how old were you at this time?
0: I was, I think, around forty-five. Yeah. Okay. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but but then we went to the race. It was in a, a Bowdoin College track in Brunswick, Maine, uh, and it turned out when we went there, it was uh, forecast, you know, like ninety degrees, a really hot day. So I knew for sure you know, I couldn't, uh, <clears throat> that would be too much handicap, uh, because, you know, you'd be sweating too much and, and, and losing weight and, and you couldn't do it. So, uh, so I said, well, uh, if I run slower, then I wouldn't be losing that much water. Uh, and, um, at night, uh, it, heat wouldn't be a problem. So I'll compromise and, and, um, uh, and, uh, speed up at night and go slow in the daytime or something like that. Anyways, uh, I figured I wouldn't have to have such a, a wicked pace. Uh, and, and so so switched over in order to take advantage of, of, of the night.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this. You talked just a moment ago about studying the exercise physiology of insects right? What, what did you learn from studying insects that you were able to apply or to share with others in ways? I mean, I understand you made some pretty significant scientific breakthroughs.
0: Yeah. I mean, for, for insects, but you know, they don't, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, energy expenditure, you can't, uh, and 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 speed et cetera contraction rate and and uh, so the same problems, but of course the insights are going to solve them in different ways that we can't do it the same way uh, but I did uh, but like I say overheating is is one of the big problems uh for for longer distances and the sprint of course it doesn't matter, but if you go a longer distance you gather up heat, and then you lose water, and then you dehydrate. So all of the systems have to be, you know, running perfectly if you're going to uh, set some kind of a record. So it's just not the energy expenditure, it's it's a uh, energy input, and in, in the water output, etc., and the waste output. Uh, so these are the same problems that occur in, in insects, only in different ways. But, you know, I, I remember... Uh, there was, uh, there are some uh, parallels uh, uh, that, that are kind of interesting. Uh, for example, uh, you know, uh, looking at honeybees, uh, I saw that they have a, a coil of their blood system in the petiole in between the thorax and the abdomen, which meant that if, if they were gonna circulate fluid into the abdomen to get rid of the heat in the thorax where the muscles are uh, with the counter current heat exchanger there, then then they wouldn't be able to lose it. So they are built, they're small. So to maintain heat, they have to keep it as much as possible in the muscles. Uh, but uh, it turns out that, that usually they have enough fluid because they're out there foraging for nectar, and so they're getting fluid, uh, and they have it in the stomach, uh, a dilute sugar solution, and which is basically water. Uh, and but I found that if I heated them, uh, they would regurgitate from the honey stomach, and and spread the uh, uh, fluid over the head and their thorax. So. Uh, You know, in fact, I published a paper in Science on that after I found it out. Uh, And and then I found out that uh, uh, Jack Fultz, who who won the Boston Marathon on one of the hottest days ever, and he, he, he was a winner. And what he'd done was he had a squeeze bottle. And instead of getting liquid from the stomach that regurgitated on his head, he'd squeeze from the squeeze bottle and he kept cooling himself. And he won the race. So, wow. you know, there's a parallel, the same kind of uh, problem and a different solution in a different way.
1: Yeah. And we're often, I think, not as intelligent as the insects or the animals around us. <laughs> <laughs> but in that case, that was pretty straightforward. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I I think you had a time when someone took credit for your work and actually published a scientific paper that was really based on your discoveries. Will you without, you know, naming any names or anything, will you just share what that experience was like, that you made a pretty profound um, discovery. And I think you were looking, you were looking for a co-author maybe, but then you found somebody who basically took Uh, work and published.
0: No, I wasn't looking for, I wasn't looking for a co-author. You know, I wanted expert advice. I was you know, I'm kind of new at this. Uh, I'm kind of new at this, and uh, but I think I have a really great idea. I wonder if it's original, uh, you know. I wonder if it's worth publishing. Uh, and uh, and uh, but I I didn't I didn't want to have somebody else take credit for it, uh, especially since I was a total unknown. Sure. Uh, they would automatically get credit for it. Uh, so if if I you know uh, uh, if he or uh, she put. Their name on it uh, because I, I was then a total unknown, total unknown in science. I was a runner, you know, so am, am I going to make a discovery? No. So, <laughs> uh, so but anyway, so I, I, you know, I gave the talk uh, and, and it was in a class and, and there were a lot of students there and everybody was really excited and, and then the, the person, uh, he came up to me afterwards and said he wanted he wanted to uh, be co-author. Hmm. And I, I said, no, you know, I, I'm, I'm not interested. Uh, I, I wanted your views, uh, you know, if this is worthwhile. And apparently it is. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and then uh, I, uh, uh, I said, c- c- he asked, can you send me the paper, what you wrote? I sure. So I sent him the paper. And what he did was he rewrote it in his handwriting and sent it out to all the other experts who who contacted him and says, oh, you had a great idea. That's just exactly what I thought. Wow. So that's, you know, that that was an eye opener. It just really blew me away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what did you what did you learn from that? Because on the one hand, as you're saying, it it can be very valuable to socialize and share our ideas and get. Yeah and perspectives. And at the same time, being careful with, with what we have. So what, there's a balance there, of course, with people you trust yeah. or, or whatever, but, yeah. but what did you, what did you ultimately learn from that experience or how did it change how you went forward from that point in your, in your career? Uh,
0: well, from that point, uh, when I have something, I, I present, <laughs> I publish it myself and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, but I also collaborate, Uh, you know, I have good collaborations Uh, and, uh, but that is if we start at the beginning together, you know, you know, like, uh, like, let's do this together. He has this problem, let's solve it. But if, if one already has it solved, there's no point to, uh, uh, to have it uh, be published uh, uh, with somebody else just, that they rewrite it, because most of the uh value is not in the writing it it's in the idea and uh in the in the work that is done to get the data. Hmm. so if you help get the data, that's totally different yeah. but if you don't provide any data uh you know that's not it
1: right then it's it's not much science if there's no data <laughs> right yes yeah. yeah. so, so when you, you were- know, so
0: so so this was this was an exception. I mean, I have to say that uh, just about all the other colleagues I had, you know, we have the best relationships, and 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 I get huge inspirations from my professors, uh, and 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 I and and I just love them, and they helped me a lot. Uh, uh, so I was totally taken aback in this case.
1: Yeah, un- understandably. Yeah. When you were when you were first looking for a school or a place. Maybe to to land, so to speak. Um, this was around the time that the DNA, you know, breakthrough, the Crick and Watson, right? And people were enamored by that and focused on that. But you tell a story in the book about someone who maybe uh, derisively used the word naturalist <laughs> to describe you. Did you did you see yourself as a naturalist? And and if so, you know, what did that mean for you? And and how is a naturalist different from a scientist? If it is
0: yeah uh, uh, well uh, naturalists uh, uh, would not be considered probably you know molecular biologists you have to deal with machines uh, and and and, uh, and uh, complicated experiments and and the naturalist is someone who is more in- Direct contact with nature and sees problems, and uh, and uh, you know I, I I felt myself to be a naturalist, but also a scientist in the sense that I see the problem and then I bring it I brought it into the lab and I do the experiments uh, uh, and and most of the uh, neat uh, problems that. I mean the problems that are solved that I'm really proud of are the ones that I saw in the field and then brought in and, and did the experiments to 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 prove it here this is what it looks like, but let's try to disprove it first of all uh and and uh and see if it really stands up uh and uh um <clears throat> so actually, after I retired uh from the university of Vermont i uh I came up here. And and I didn't have have, have a lab, uh, and and I, I, you know, for a number of years, every year I would at least find something that I could get the data out in the field uh, that didn't require uh, uh, machinery, uh, uh, lab equipment, and so on to do it. Uh, but I could make the observations and get the data, and and I published. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, one paper a year, pretty much, and I published them in the Northeastern Naturalist because uh, I want to give credit to this is where uh, you really find what's newest by being out in the field, not in the lab, Mm -hmm. unless you're really into the DNA or something like that. Uh, And uh, um, so... um, So I call myself a naturalist because I go back everything that even the physiological stuff came from the field. So, you know, I want to give value to that, that to be out there. I mean, uh, rather than just theory, I mean, uh, I see something new every every single day, every single day, there's something uh, that, that could potentially be pursued and and that would nobody would ever come up from a theoretical point. And if they did, they wouldn't know where to begin to get the data.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's all the way back to what we talked about yeah. at the beginning yeah. of the key to life is contact, right? Right there being in exactly. direct contact. Yeah. Something yes. else that yeah. I, I was really, um, was really touched by in, in your book is this, um, this experience you shared about basically having, I don't know how you would call it, um, developed a sort of pain for one, maybe disability uh, at some point in your career, when you were pursuing a course of study, I think by this time you were at UCLA and then you actually went home to Maine and a lot, and you found a path and these ailments that you were experiencing went away. Is, do I have that right? And if so, will you talk about that a little bit?
0: uh okay uh yeah i was uh, <clears throat> i uh, i had started my master's degree uh was in the lab actually with, with with cells it was cell biology and and my professor was james cook and, and we collaborated he, he he you know he was the main uh, uh, he, he basically had the problem and and he put me onto the problem. And uh uh, you know, it was a it was just a wonderful collaboration. Uh and and he said, you know, I ought to go on with uh, with molecular biology because this was a hot thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh like I say, I went, uh he said, well you ought to go to UCLA, because uh, he, he had gone there. So but actually this was after uh Getting a step ahead of me, uh, um, I was doing uh, respiration, metabolic expenditure of of these cells, and and they said, "Well, you ought to go to such and such a place, uh, and uh, and apply there for a PhD." I was doing a master's, so I went there, and and they asked me, you know, uh, "Why do you want to become a biologist?" And I said. Uh, well, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was about six years old, and, and I was uh, in the woods in, in uh, Germany, and, and I came across this brook, and there was this big willow tree, and it was full of bloom, and there were birds there catching flies, and there were bumblebees uh, on the flowers, and he jumped up. He says, you're a naturalist. <laughs> And, and, you know, so th- this was not respiratory physiology.
1: And, the, we had was a, not, and this was know, not a compliment. <laughs> Is that right? He didn't it was
0: this. not meant to be a compliment. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, w- <laughs> I, I feel the opposite. I feel uh, th- that uh, <laughs> it's, it's a compliment.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs>
0: and uh, <laughs> so that's where it came from
1: okay and then and, as you were following this course, basically suggested by someone else about the molecular biology and you're trying to find your place in the problem and what your contribution can be, that ultimately it led to some maybe not so healthy outcomes for you, but then you made a shift and yeah
0: yeah you- so i I went to u c l a and I was going to do you know extra <clears throat> mitochondrial uh DNA uh I mean, extra chromosomal DNA uh, like DNA from chloroplasts or DNA from uh, mitochondria, uh, you know, these are potentially ancient symbionts that became parasites that that are now part of our body. And it's very exciting stuff. And, uh, but the the methods are extremely um, intricate and, uh, and, and, and it depended on, on huge machines and stuff. And, and I went into this lab to try to do it and I didn't get anywhere. Uh, and in fact uh, I had, you know, basically, I didn't know what the hell was going on for a year. Uh, and, and I totally, you know, bombed out. Um, so.
1: Uh, And I think at this point it even impacted your ability to move physically, right? Like you had pain, run,
0: yeah, yeah. It was a whole year, and at the end, I think I was so stressed out uh, that that something I was I was ill, but I I couldn't find out what it was, Uh, and uh, uh, I had you know joint problems and pains. Uh, and I didn't know what they were and, and, uh, and, uh, but, you know, I had, I had, so that was another one of these uh, injury problems that basically led to an appreciation of, of, uh, of when you are healthy, you know, what a gift it is. And like I say, I had changed my topic, and I started take, working with caterpillars, and then from the caterpillars to moths, and I was in my element and made discoveries. And then I recovered. So I think it might have something psycho-physical uh, uh, was involved
1: there. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. The way you describe it in in the book, and and to just point out that this love of caterpillars was something from very young age and that you had made little cages with screens and even as i understand still do to this day that it's just been a passion and part of maybe who you are
0: yeah so So, that was who i was and i wasn't being i was being something else trying to be something else yeah
1: yeah there's i think there's something very powerful in in that for all of us just finding what is true for us what do we love where do we belong you know that kind of thing yeah So that's wonderful. Okay. So the last, just the last few questions I have in this part of the interview, uh, one thing that I want to ask you make this statement, uh, there's a few things in here. I found really fascinating. There's a sentence in your book. You say one lesson I have learned is that life is a journey and too careful planning of the road ahead can lead to a dead end and frustration. Mm -hmm. So what's your, what's your on that, on like having a plan versus, you know, just being on a journey?
0: Well, it's, I think, you know, there's so many opportunities that come up all the time. Uh, And, and if you're totally on, on a highway uh, going 60 miles an hour, you're not going to see. And, uh, uh, and kind of wandering around, uh, and going slow, uh, you see a lot more. I mean, yeah. for example, this this morning, uh, I, I was wondering why I hadn't seen the woodcock here. Uh, it, every spring, there's a woodcock here that displays. And I know they catch worms uh, that are coming out of the ground now. And we had robins here, and they all left. So what the heck was going on? Well, they both uh, feed on on angleworms, and, and so I says, well, I wonder if there are angleworms, so this morning, I spent about half an hour just raking leaves to see if there would be the angleworms under there, that they should be, they should be pulling the leaves down into the ground, and, and, and I spent half an hour, and I found four angleworms, so if it took me that long, I mean, there's, obviously, they can't find any, so right now, I have a problem right here, what happened to the angleworms? Why didn't I find any angleworms? Uh, you know, it's totally unexpected. You now, if I was totally involved in some other project uh, uh, and, and I needed to get to the end and, and it might not be going that well anymore, I might still be stuck with it, but, but maybe this is more important. Uh, maybe I should look at this a little bit more. So in other words, things are coming up all the time. Um, and, and sometimes it's nice to have a choice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the power of being present, being attentive. Yeah. Right. That's, that's huge. Another, another thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, you share a story in the book about a time when I think you were part of an effort that was from the, it was probably from the state department of forestry to spray for moths. Right. And I think they were spraying DDT but yes. and you can correct or, or add anything here um, that I might have wrong, but what I found so powerful was this idea that they were spraying to solve a problem that ultimately wasn't really a problem. Yeah. Will you talk about that? Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, While well, those are <clears throat> the, the gypsy moths, they will, you know, defoliate. Uh, and, uh, and so, um, they have these population outbreaks, and uh, <clears throat> um, but they have natural controls normally. Uh, I mean, they're parasitic wasps, uh, and and they find the caterpillars and lay an egg, and they eat the inside. Da da da. And and uh, and then there are flies that do the same thing, and then there are birds that feed them, and then there are bacteria that get them, and there are viruses that get them. So once the population gets high, boom. Then you know, just like uh, like like COVID, if if lots of people have it and they're many together, it spreads like crazy. And so here, that's what that's what happens normally in nature all the time, and, and then they get knocked down. Boom, they all get killed. So uh, they, uh, uh, you know, unless they have some remedy, and, and these caterpillars usually don't. Uh, so uh, anyway, so they were going to uh, see if there were gypsy moths up there in northern Arista County. And I was, I got a job just driving uh, the, the roads and putting on little traps where they had uh, uh, scent that attracts uh attracts males, uh, and then they get stuck on glue, and then you'd know how many, if they were there. And if they were there, they were going to spray the hell out of it. Uh, but, you know, to tell you the truth, right here, where I am right now, I've been here uh, since 40 years, and uh, uh, I see uh, egg masses of gypsy moths almost every year, and a few caterpillars. They're here, they're here, all the time, all the time. Uh, but in very small amounts, so they're being controlled by, uh, you know, if, if if you spray just because they're there, you would be spraying everywhere all the time.
1: Yeah, uh, and then all the but unfavorable consequences. Yeah, but of- if
0: there's an outbreak, the, if there's an outbreak, then the predators and the viruses and the bacteria they will come in and they'll raise hell and, and get rid of them.
1: Yeah. And, and DDT we've since learned is really not a good thing to be introducing into the environment. But at the time we didn't know that, or even believed it was safe, but I was just, again, I was just really struck by this because I have this kind of theory as I go through life that very often we're trying in life, we're trying to solve problems that either don't, they're not really problems. It's just a perspective we have of something we don't like or something we think shouldn't be that way is A, and B, the solution is often worse than it's kind of the the cure is worse than the disease kind of thing. It's kind of remarkable.
0: Definitely. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's where, you know, contact is, is required. Uh, You know, if, if they had known that here was a place, you know, where somebody had seen these moths every year, uh, at least some of them for, for, for two decades, they'd probably think twice about because they were assuming uh that once you get a few there, then they, they wanna explode into a into a population explosion and, and have defoliation. Uh but you know, if you know what happens in other places, then you can have better idea of what the mechanisms are. Uh and nature has some pretty good solutions.
1: Yeah, no uh, doubt.
0: Um, keep a hands off, yeah.
1: Yeah. Something else I'd love to to hear you talk about that. uh, This was one that for me was a bit of a, like a mind expander (laughs) that you say, there is no absolute state of being alive. There are degrees of it from that of the dividing yeast cells in our bread dough to the hummingbird. And I had never thought of that. You talk about frogs that freeze to the point of basically being dead, but then they come back and so forth. And that just resonated with me as a 44 year old, who by the mid afternoon needs a longish nap, <laughs> right. Of aliveness, <laughs> this state of aliveness that some days, some moments I feel way more alive than others, but this idea that in biology and life itself, there are degrees of being alive. Will you, will you talk about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, they found seeds in Egyptian tombs, you know, for thousands of years. I mean, they were, they were not living, uh, you know they were dried up uh and and there was uh so with seeds, you can kind of understand that you you know you plant your garden you got these dried peas and so on, and they're dried they're they're not doing anything
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, uh, so yeah I mean uh, their degrees i mean the bears who hibernate they're more alive, but they're still not really doing much uh and and so there are you know woodchucks and Round squirrels who, who are just barely breathing and, and having one heartbeat per minute or something uh, so uh, you know it, and so that's you know is that really being alive i don 't know yeah. uh, but
1: uh, interesting uh,
0: okay so that there was for example uh, uh, n- his name was Hinton. He was the editor of insect physiology. And, and he had uh, on his desk uh, a jar uh, with midge larvae, some fly larvae from Africa. Uh, they normally dry up in pools and, and there might, they might be you know 20 years before the rain come again. But in the meantime, they're just totally like, like dry chaff. And he could take them out and put them and get them wet and, and immediately, you know, they come alive. So you have instant insect. Uh, so so the same with the frogs that I'm hearing right now, as a matter of fact, uh down there in the pond. Uh, you know, they're frozen. Uh uh and, and they were under the snow and, and they certainly had no senses uh at all. Uh and uh and you wouldn't uh it's hard to say whether you call them alive or dead.
1: Yeah. Well, and I realize here I'm maybe kind of attempting to bridge the the scientific realm with the philosophical realm. But that insight about degrees of aliveness, because I tended to think it's binary, like as a human being, you're either alive or you're dead. But clearly we all have energy, you know, and we can see through glucose and metabolism and other things that are, we'd say, oh, I'm having low energy. I'm having high energy. And there is some correspondence, some correlation with the physical energy systems in our body. But it had never really occurred to me that in all of life, there are, it's maybe not as black and white as I had thought it was. And, And then that's where the philosophical side is. What can we do to live with, with greater levels of aliveness. right? And I'm asking this, I guess, against the backdrop of a society that seems to, to have a lot of addiction, a lot of depression, a lot of disease, that is really not what I see as aliveness. So I don't know if you have a view on that, but how can we as individuals, even in maybe what could be considered a sick society, how can we live with greater levels of aliveness? Yeah. yeah. Well, I
0: think uh you know i totally agree with you that that there are different levels of aliveness and uh you know i think we want to live everyone wants to live at at the highest or high, higher levels uh and uh, uh and, and and there are certain things that detract uh you know we could potentially you know uh maybe get get a shot and that put knocks us out totally and we can hibernate or something, but I don't think I'd want that. Yeah. I don't care if it lived a thousand years that way. Uh I would prefer uh, you know living ten minutes than a thousand years being knocked out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a good thing to think about.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so the yeah. I just have three last questions in this section. Um, one, I want to ask you about roadkill. So I understand that you, and will you tell me about your relationship with roadkill?
0: Uh, well, uh, I mean, you could eat it, but, you know, and I have, but, but not, I don't need to anymore, uh, but I have, uh, but, uh, uh, I used it to feed my ravens, Uh. So actually, when I was training for the 100k or the 24-hour, I you know I had these long runs. I was always looking for roadkill because I had ravens, and I needed to feed them. So <clears throat> And then I started burying beetles, uh, uh, really interesting behavior, um, bring the roadkill if it's small. And, and you watch them bury it, and watch them transport. And 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 I, I made another discovery there: how they can change themselves almost instantly in, in, in appearance uh, from uh, to look like a bumblebee. Uh, an amazing. Uh, uh, so again, that was all a side uh, uh, show from from Roadkill, uh, and and I just you know, published a little paper on, 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 on maggots uh, and, and how they, you know, dispose of, of a carcass and how they sometimes coordinate their own behavior. Uh, uh, so all kinds of live things going on uh, with these dead things. You know, so the live ones, you get one mouse and, and you get uh, a thousand flies. So they're converting to, to other life. Uh, and uh so you see the cycling so the you know the animal isn't really dead, it becomes something else yeah uh, and, um,
1: absolutely uh, and and that leads to to another thing I want to ask, which is um you you kind of close your book with this description of how you want your life to go uh and being. Uh, being buried on the property there in Maine and so forth. Well, you, I don't mean to be morose or take the conversation somewhere. You don't want to go, but I really appreciate your view of life persisting. And I just want to ask you, what do you yeah. see? Like, how do you, how do you see the next stages of your life going? What do you want? as it, is it transitions?
0: Uh, well, you know, definitely. Uh, I, I think about the future, even, you know, after my body's dead, uh, you know, it's going to be converted to other life, and 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 I, that gives me some uh, um, pleasure, I guess, uh, in the sense that satisfaction that that you know life continues, uh, and it 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 continues in other forms. I mean, how is it different from a caterpillar turning into a butterfly? How is it different? You know, we we don't think of that as an end. Uh so why not, you know, us you know turning into uh into uh uh into plants that get turned into deer. So that's a, a conversion as well. Uh and, and we don't think of it as an end, it's just the beginning of something else. Uh and, and I don't have any uh, so I, I think for me, uh you know, looking at it that way. You know, the last thing I'd ever want is to be put into a casket and make it sterile and, and underground and and so nothing can get at it. Uh, you know, I I I uh, I want to be converted to to the rest of life. I want to join the party. I'll be continuous. You know, I'll just be something else.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a beautiful view. I think and one very different from what many of us have who maybe fear death or. Yeah. You know, don't see the interconnection of all things. And there yeah. was a passage in your book that, that I was, I was really touched by where you say, I've seen my father sleeping with a bear cub and my mother with her dearly loved monkey riding on her shoulder, have had crows, owls, wild geese, and ravens as companions lived with a raccoon, a skunk and several dogs. I've nurtured innumerable caterpillars to adulthood and routinely fed chickadees from my hand. I'm an advocate of close interspecies associations through mutual, not just one-way interactions. Ingesting them is about as intimate as it gets. And I have eaten many mice (laughs) and chickens and would never pass up roadkill unless I had to. (laughs) Eating other life is what every one of us does every day. I don't think I would mind being eaten myself. (laughs) I just thought, what a wonderful, like, whole life view. Well, I'd
0: I'd forgotten that, that I'd written that. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, that's what I believe.
1: Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me ask about that. Okay. So the last I said, I had three and I really have just two. So in the book, you talk about love, you talk about, and I want to find this exact thing. It's not as long as that. So this is pretty short, but you do say toward the end of the book that you say, pardon me. Um, You say, having now passed my 80th birthday, I'm no longer the runner or the scientist I once was, but I've had most of my dreams come true. Both both roles had until recently captured my focus and my energies. I'm sorry that I was all too often unable to give more attention to relationships and friends. My new race in the last passage of my life is to learn to love more deeply. So I just want to ask you about that, about learning to love more deeply. What does that mean to you? How are you going about it? Why is that important to you? Just anything about about learning to love more deeply.
0: Jeez. Uh, uh, it's being considerate. I mean, I think to to, to think <clears throat> not from your own perspective, but you know what others might be thinking. You know, uh, you know, to be a, uh, a scientist, you often have to be so concentrated on on, on something, on this problem. And, and their you know, it's, it's total immersion and, and, uh, you know, and, and that takes away, I mean, I had good relations and, and, and they were lost because of that, especially since, you know, I spent like 10 years working on the trees, tree tree swallows. I had to be out there, uh, you know, from the morning till night. Be away from my partner, uh, and 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 that might f- uh, feel like uh, abandonment, and and, um, and it, it it in a way it was or is, uh, but uh, you know, so it feels like a relief. I I don't have to be out there, you know, twenty four hours a day and see what that swallow is going to do. Uh, you know, I can I can think about somebody else. And 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 that is you know I was I was loving the swallows or the ravens, and, and they took all my attention. So love is a matter of paying attention and uh, and being open to something else uh, yeah. rather than oneself or 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 maybe maybe even something. Uh, no, whether not the swallow or a raven or, or whatever.
1: Uh, thank you for that description. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me go there. Um, I know I we've covered sure it up. Yeah. I know we've covered um, a lot in a in a very short amount of time, uh, but I do just want to ask you if there's anything that we haven't touched on or anything that you want to talk about before we transition to the other parts of the interview. I'd love um, now's, now's the time we can do that.
0: No, I, I can't
1: think of anything. Okay, good. All right. Well, well, we'll go ahead and transition then to the enlightening lightning round. Um, how are you doing, by the way? Good. Good. Okay. All right. So this next one is, again, it's a series of questions. I think, I think there's nine questions here that my aim, for the most part, is to ask the question and be quiet. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. I might pull on a response here or there, but my, my goal is to keep us moving. Okay. All right. So question number one here, I'm borrowing a line from Forrest Gump, right? Which is, um, I'm asking you to please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a journey. Okay. Question number two, what's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years?
0: what is the most important
1: okay question number three if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip what would the shirt say love nature okay question number four what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often
0: Uh, other than what?
1: Uh other than one of your own.
0: Uh okay. Um, <clears throat> um of men and Martius. Uh I forgot the author at this point. I think it's Errington. Errington, his love for, for for growing up with Martius and, and nature of of men and Martius. Uh, I think that's what it's called. I, Paul I kind sort of faintly in my mind because it was something that influenced me a lot when I was a kid. Uh, so I don't remember too much about it, but except that it was important.
1: Yeah. Of Men in Marshes by Paul Arrington, published in 1957. Does that sound right?
0: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You got it.
1: Well, Yeah, I just found it on. Oh, that's, that's just the Internet right there. The collective brain <laughs> right there. Gee. Yep. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Okay. Question number five. So in your life, you've traveled a lot, although you've been in Maine a lot too. Um, what's one travel hack, meaning something you take with you when you travel or something you do to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? A camera. Okay. Any particular kind and any specific way you use that camera? Nope. Okay.
0: I just have a little, little tiny camera. Uh, uh, got a digital, uh, and I, I had one. My first camera was a little box camera, a square one, uh, Kodak, and so I've had a camera ever ever since I was, ever since I saw things that I wanted to see again.
1: Well, and you're sure to take it with you when you're going from here to there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right,
1: huh? Okay. Uh, question number six: What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Uh, I can't. I, I. I guess I'm aging well, uh, but I, uh, I. I can't remember anything that I changed, except I'm not running as much.
1: You're still doing about four miles a day.
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's way more than most people. Run right, like <laughs> anyway. I, I just love that. I, I'm so inspired. Okay. Uh, question number seven What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: Um, that life is everlasting, life is everlasting.
1: Yeah, me too. Beautiful. Okay. Question number eight What's the most important? Or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work. Talking. Any particular time or manner or topic? Uh, to, to talking.
0: Being open to uh, to weird ideas or un, you know unexpected uh, and being tolerant.
1: Hmm. Okay. Question number nine. So this one relates to money and it's aside from the power of compound interest. What's the, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money?
0: She's, I don't think I've learned anything about money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still pondering it. Uh, Um, it's it's not it's not the answer that that's one thing I know it's uh, uh, enough is enough that's it.
1: Okay, awesome. And then the last question here is if people want to learn more from you or if they want to connect with you, assuming you'd be okay if they did, what would you have them do?
0: You mean like from the audience?
1: Yeah, anybody uh, listening. If I mean, of course, they could buy one of your books they could look on wikipedia they can search youtube for some videos i don't think you really have a website necessarily or social media presence
0: yeah well i i you know i don't know how to answer that question because i don't i I don't really want to influence anyone you know what what they what they should do i mean it's whatever they 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 feel like doing and um that feels appropriate to them. So uh I, I don't want to make any recommendations.
1: Okay, fair enough. That's fine. All right. So as an expression of gratitude to you, Barent, one thing I've done is I've gone online to a micro lending site. It's actually started in San Francisco. It's an organization called Kiva.org. And what they do is they disperse loans to women entrepreneurs in developing countries to help them grow their business and improve the quality of life for their family, their community, and themselves. So through Kiva.org, I've loaned a hundred dollars to a woman in East Kenya named Elisivia, and she will use it to buy more seeds that she will then sell. So when that loan is repaid, by the way, I won't, I won't earn any interest. It'll go to facilitating more loans. So hopefully this is a virtuous cycle that we've been able to put a little momentum into just from the simple act of having a conversation. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to do that.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the last part, the last part of the interview here is um, is just, it's about writing. It's about creativity, habits, routines, mindsets tools that, that can help us to complete our own writing projects, our own creative projects. And uh, I want to, I just want to start with the question. When did you first know you were a writer?
0: Uh, uh, That was, uh, I know, I I remember uh, when I was still in high school, uh, I thought about writing how how neat it would be to write a book. Uh, And and I thought, uh, and and I know precisely what book it was. I wanted to be up in a tree and spend a year up in a tree and and document everything that happens to that tree, in that tree, around that tree. Uh, And and because I felt there's so much going on and just focus on it on a tree. But anyway, and, and then I I I know the next thought was, well, actually most of what will be going on will be down in the roots, and, and I won't be able to know at all. I have no idea what's going on in the roots. So I said that will probably be the most important part, and I'll miss the holes. And so so I can't be a writer because I don't know enough. And then uh then I I did my first book, Bumblebee Economics, uh, because I had all kinds of information now on, on bumblebees because all of the studies that I had done. And so, uh, and and I wrote it and it it was a hit. I mean, and it was uh, uh, touted by the New York times and it was my first book Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, uh, it was uh, quoted uh, nominated as the best book in science or something like that. And, 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 Holy shit! And I said, you know, so I said, well, maybe I am a writer, and so uh, I wrote. Uh, so, so then wrote a book about my my owl and me, and so so that's that's when it started, the first book.
1: Well, you've also published more than a hundred scientific papers. And uh, my experience is it's somewhat rare for someone to publish meaningful scientific work or academic work and to write books that reach a large popular audience. And you've managed to do both. What I wonder is, what is your writing routine like? And how is it different if it is between the writing you do or you've done scientifically and the writing you've done that's more personal, like a book about you and an owl?
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, the the latter uh, comes after I have a whole bunch of information, Uh, you know, usually it's basically always stuff that I already know about, and I want to learn more about, and uh, and, and I want to get a a better grasp of, because I figure uh, if you write for a general audience, you have to have a broader perspective rather than just pinpointing you have to have the context Uh, and so like right now I'm working on a book on beauty and nature and and so every once in a while uh I uh uh, I have an idea and, and 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 I write a few paragraphs and see where it goes and just see where it flows and then I stick it in a pile and and, 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 and I don't force myself to say, Oh, I have to keep going and going. So I write, you know, what, what seems to come up. Uh, I, and a lot of times, uh, I, I think of things, you know, like after I go to bed, suddenly I have an idea. And so I have a piece of paper there and a pen and, and I write it down. And if I don't, then the next morning I would have forgotten it. Uh, so I just gather bits and pieces, uh, and then I, you know, start to read and uh, find new things. Uh, you know, it goes <clears throat> in bits and pieces, and and it, it, it gradually grows branches like a tree, <laughs> and after a while, it takes root.
1: <laughs> wow, great, yeah, great description. What tools do you find to be helpful, or maybe even indispensable, in your writing? Do you write longhand? Do you have a? Uh, do you use Microsoft Word or something else? Is is there a way that you organize your research in folders, either physical or digital? Basically, what tools do you use that help you to actually get your books done?
0: Yeah. Well, I have a folder. Uh, you know, if I'm going to write about in the northern forest or something, uh stick things in there as they come along. Um and uh um yeah that's about it. Uh I uh what's the question again?
1: So it's about uh, what tools. What tools do you find tools. Yeah like, yeah, like, tools. like yeah, a-
0: I, I wish I could type. I I I my only tool is is basically you know I don't have much of a tool except my pencil uh and and I wish I could type uh, but, but I'm only now starting I had somebody I pay someone to to type for me uh, and and I now uh you know when they're really late and don't do it, so then I have to do it myself and it's so pain uh painful to, because it's so slow but now i'm I'm gradually getting into the swing of it and, and starting to, to learn to type now in my old age. So wow. uh you know I I, I wish uh, I could type better.
1: Yeah. Uh by the way, are you using a a MacBook? An Apple? Yeah. yeah. You know yeah. that in Microsoft Word and some other applications, there's a really great speech to text feature where you can basically dictate to the computer.
0: Speech to text. Yeah.
1: It's pretty. Well, cool. I've
0: I've heard of that. I've heard of that, but the thing is, I don't quite believe it yet. You know, I, I I can't quite believe that. But you know, maybe 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 it really is true. I know there's a lot of magic out there, uh, and
1: uh, yeah, it, it's not it, perfect, but it the is. The thing
0: is, you know, I I'd be mumbling all over the place, and, uh, and
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's another there's another feature that one of my one of my interview guests told me about that he will say one of the things he does when he writes is he will have someone read it aloud to him so he can hear it not from his own being. But he said that sometimes when there's no one available, he'll actually have the computer read it aloud. So not only can you speak to it wow. and have it dictate, but you can also, in another wow. mode, have it yeah. read it back to you. It's just kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So Well, okay.
0: you know, I, I am a very computer incompetent, uh, and, and I went kicking and screaming when they made us have a computer when I was at the University of Vermont. We had to get a computer. I just hated it, uh, so I'm, I'm only starting to get used to it a little bit, but uh-huh. I'm still finding. Uh, it's just, you know, I don't understand it. there's too much going on, too many options, and yeah, it's kind of scary to me.
1: There's a lot. Well, I'll tell you just from my view, uh, I'm actually really encouraged by what you're saying, (laughs) because if if I can for myself, know, or I can share with others with confidence that, hey, you don't need a fancy computer. You don't need sophisticated software. You can take a pencil and you can write your thoughts. And my friend there in the woods in Maine has done this and published more than 12 books. And I think it's closer to 20 now. Is that right?
0: Yeah. They're all handwritten originally. Yeah, that's amazing. Several times, maybe. Yeah.
1: That's so great. Well, tell me if you will a bit about when you are writing a book. What is your routine like? Do you write in the morning? Are you a night owl? Do you write with coffee? Do you listen to music or just out in nature? Like, what is your routine like yeah. as a writer? Yeah, yeah.
0: With coffee, first thing in the morning.
1: Okay. So do yeah. you, do you just wake up naturally? Do you have an alarm clock You right with the sun? How does that all? No.
0: I, when I wake up, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Cool. Uh, when you're writing, how connected do you feel to your reader? How aware are you of your audience in the act of actually writing?
0: Yeah. I think I am a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I figure, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you know, is is this going to be too complicated or is it going to be too simple or, uh, um, you know, I don't have any particular reader in mind, but I definitely have a, you know, this is going to be read and, and, and this is going to be interpreted and, and so, um, I have to aim it to, uh, I, I think of people that I know, you know, if if they were reading it. So I have, you know, uh, um, some, so I'm actually speaking to someone, you know, real.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know that can be helpful. What do you find is the most challenging part of the writing, of, of writing and how do you face it? How do you overcome it when it when it happens?
0: Most challenging. Uh, I th- I think I think it, it's mostly um, finding connections uh, because you have an overview and it. It, you know, I have all these papers, I uh, think some good ideas. You know, how is it connected? Is it connected? Uh, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, how is someone going to be interested in it? And What will they want to uh, get out of it? What do I want to get out of it? What do I want to say? Uh, and and where did it come from? Uh, so I think about things like that.
1: Mm-hmm what what is for you the most rewarding part what's the most enjoyable part or rewarding part of writing
0: uh, well i mean that was very rewarding to me what you just said uh you know about what i wrote mm.
1: uh
0: because i had i had forgotten it and 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 it sounds good to me now uh, yeah. and it you know and and, and that is uh, very satisfying uh yeah. because uh you know, I don't have those thoughts all the time. They don't, you know, they, they come up and, and, and they gather, but it, it's, it's rewarding that, that it's saved, you know, uh, yeah. because it only went through there once. Uh, and uh, I mean, the background might be there, but it's not articulated and until it's down, you know, it doesn't really exist. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it, it's a keeping, and yeah. and, uh, and, and uh, having have, having it spread like a tree growing branches and so on. It's it, it's life.
1: Yeah, yep. that's pretty cool. <clears throat> All right. Well, with that, um, I think I will just ask you what what advice or encouragement would you leave anyone listening with who is either in the situation of being in what's sometimes called the messy middle of their own book or their own project, or it's a dream they've harbored for a long time, but they haven't really started on what advice or encouragement do you say to, to anyone listening to help them get their own books done?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the advice is to, to just start. I mean, you just got to start, uh, and, and, and not be afraid to, uh, uh, uh to to think that it has to be perfect i mean it's just like uh uh like building something it just take one piece at a time and see what's attached and 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 not be afraid to do i mean that's the main thing is is to go out and do the same, same thing with, with running it's the hardest part is to just get out the door. <laughs> And, uh-huh. uh, uh, and, uh, 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 just get it started.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I, and I, I, think I would be remiss if I didn't also ask what, what have you learned from running that has served you well as a writer?
0: Uh, just exactly that, what I just said, because, you know, I think this is a good analogy is, is, it's like running you you have to get out the door uh and and uh it's it's going to be a long ways and 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 keep at it and uh you know every little bit counts um, and uh you know some days are bad you don't feel like it and other days you suddenly flow uh and 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 uh, uh it's you know, don't expect miracles. Uh, uh, but but the you know I, I look at a book list so many words so many pages how how can you pass I mean it's intimidating when you look at the whole thing you just have to take it a little bit at a time and uh, uh, and and keep adding uh, and and that way once you've started you automatically uh, when things come up that are related, then they will you find a place for them. But the main thing is to get something up there that you can attach to, uh, and uh, and have the idea first. That's the main thing.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, as a as a conversation here comes to a close, Bernd, um One thing I also realized that that I want to ask your perspective about that, that I haven't touched on yet is just about As human beings living on a world that's full of environmental and ecological challenges, right? Some of these that, all of these we've created collectively, but any one of them seems way, it's way too big for us individually to solve, whether it's climate change or deforestation or overfishing or this kind of thing. And I personally, and I know many people, I think, feel this way that that we're all screwed and there's nothing we can do, (laughs) right? But obviously there is something we can do because together we created this. But what I'm trying to go with this kind of poorly worded question is just what's your view about what, like what we should do, how we should live, what the hope is for us as a species or the, or life and the earth, you know, and so forth. What, do you have any, anything to share or any thoughts about that?
0: Um, well, I think I think contact with nature and knowing more about nature uh, is necessary <clears throat> in order to have an appreciation for it, uh, and the feeling of 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 connectedness to it and 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 love for it, uh, and then I think one would, you know, automatically um, do things that uh, take that into consideration. And uh, I think the main problem is that, you know, people who would be throwing, you know, plastic all over the place or whatever, uh, you know, they, they don't know enough what, what they're actually doing. Uh, and that it has an effect, uh, and and or uh, they, you know, they, they don't have contact with enough nature to to appreciate it. So you know, I put a a bird feeder out here, uh, and and I'm enjoying I'm enjoying watching the birds. Uh, it's not going to make any big difference. But it makes a little difference, and you know, if 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 uh, a million people uh, do it, then it's going to make a big difference. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it starts uh, small. The same with running. The first step out the door, uh, you got to do that first step, and then usually uh, other ones come after that, and they kind of kind of come there. By themselves but the main thing is to start on something and and be you know conscious
1: yeah well said thank you for that okay well barrett um i know we've we spent a lot of time i'm grateful to you for making time in your day to to talk with me and, and everyone listening uh as i mentioned i really love this book racing the clock running across a lifetime oh, a lot away from it. I shared it with my, I shared passages with my wife on our last date night. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better. Consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep, in every area of your life to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.